Hey everybody, this is Pedro Chung, and welcome to Bible Sumo Weekly, a Bible study podcast for everyday Christians. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. Episode title Joseph Plants His Silver Cup. In our last episode, we left off with Joseph's brothers amazed at the warm welcome that they had received from Egypt's prime minister. Now, you had recalled that they were extremely fearful at the possible consequences that they would receive because during their first trip, they had returned home with all of their money returned to them. And so they had taken all this food without any payment. And so they returned back to Egypt for their second trip and they brought gifts, double the money, and their youngest brother, Benjamin, which was one of the conditions that had been given to them by Joseph, the prime minister. But Joseph Stewart reassures Joseph's brothers when they had returned that the books were balanced. No money was owed, and the money that they had found in their sacks, it was placed by their God. And Simeon was released, and he was unscathed, unharmed. Now, the brothers were then seated at a table in Joseph's house, and they were arranged by birth order. And I said that the odds of this occurring randomly were less than one in 300,000. And even though Benjamin was shown favoritism, for he was given five times as much food in his portion of the meal compared to the other brothers, all the brothers were joyous. They were happy. There was no hint of envy toward their youngest brother, Benjamin. And so now we come to the start of Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44 verses 1 to 17 can be outlined in three sections. Section 1, the placement of the silver cup with Benjamin, which is in verse 1 to 5. Second, the discovery of the silver cup with Benjamin, verses 6 to 13. And third and finally, the pronouncement of guilt on Benjamin, verses 14 to 17. So let's read the start of chapter 44, the first section, the placing of the silver cup with Benjamin, beginning in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to a steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So here at the start of Genesis chapter 44, after the lunch meal had been completed, Joseph commands his steward to fill his brother's sacks with food as much as they could carry. Furthermore, just like the first time, he instructs his steward to also return each man's money in their sacks. Now, in the English Standard Version, the translation that I'm reading from, in verse 1 and throughout this entire Genesis narrative, 
The word money is actually the Hebrew word kasef, which can be translated white metal or silver. So this Hebrew word for silver, kasef, it's used 20 times from Genesis 37 till now in chapter 44. And you'll recall that the first instance of this word for silver, it was used in Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph's brothers had sold Joseph to the Midianite traders for 20 shekels of silver, kasef. And I don't think it's coincidence that Joseph is now using silver as a test to test the character of his brothers and to see and gauge their readiness for repentance and restoration. So not only was Joseph Stewart commanded to place the silver money back into the brother's sacks, he was also asked to place Joseph's silver cup of divination in the sack of the youngest brother, Benjamin. Now, the return of the money this second time was not that consequential, but Joseph's prized silver cup of divination, this is what mattered. So the next day, the brothers were sent back to Canaan, and shortly thereafter, Joseph again gives another command to a steward, and he asks his steward to overtake his brothers and then to accuse his brothers of ingratitude and theft. Now, I wonder what Joseph Stewart was thinking here. I mean, the first time money was returned to these men, the steward was probably thinking or just assuming that Joseph was magnanimous. And perhaps the same conclusion could be made with the return of the silver money this second time. But for Joseph to divest his irreplaceable silver cup to the youngest brother, the one who had been given a fivefold increase in food during the festive lunch meal, that must have been difficult for this steward to conceive. And now, to accost his brothers and accuse them of theft, the steward must have been scratching his head to understand the underlying intentions of his master. But nevertheless, the steward does exactly as Joseph had instructed. Now, let me make one more comment on Joseph's silver cup. Why was the silver cup so special? Well, you see, normal drinking cups or goblets, they could be easily replaced. But divination goblets were not. The practice of divination in Mesopotamia and here in Egypt, it was ubiquitous and quite important. And what would typically happen would be that oil would be poured into water or vice versa. And so when the water and the oil were mixed, it would create configurations and shapes that can then be observed and studied by the diviner. This practice was later prohibited when Moses received the law from God, and it's recorded as a prohibition both in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. And so, because of this prohibition later in the Torah, many would question whether or not Joseph truly would have practiced divination because it's obviously against God's commands. Now, I don't think we could be dogmatic here, but I think it is a likely possibility that Joseph probably did practice divination. 
And since the Torah had not been given yet, Joseph really wasn't under the Mosaic law and covenant, which includes this prohibition of divination. Now let's continue reading the second section of this passage, beginning in verse 6, and here we find the silver cup with Benjamin. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sack we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So we see here at the start of the second section that Joseph Stewart did exactly as Joseph had instructed. He overtakes the brothers and he accuses them of ingratitude and pilferage. And notice how Joseph's brothers respond. They said, Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Far be it. This Hebrew phrase that is translated, far be it, is often used to introduce an oath. Job uses this exact same phrase in Job chapter 34, verse 10, when he says, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. Joshua similarly spoke uh, toward the end of his life when he said, Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh and serve other gods. And Joseph will soon use this exact same phrase later in this chapter in verse 17. Now, I would venture to guess that most of us have been falsely accused sometime in our life. And often, our natural human response would be indignation. And we see Joseph's brothers frustrated when they heard this false accusation. As they said, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. But since we have a much fuller knowledge of these brothers through this narrative, we actually see and understand that it was consistent within the brothers' characters to steal and to receive this type of accusation. Remember not too long ago in Genesis chapter 35, the treachery of Simeon and Levi with their mass slaughtering of the men at Shechem. These two men were mass murderers. These same brothers were fully intending to murder Joseph before trafficking him as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. They further lied to conceal their sin from their father, and they continued doing this for the last 20 to 25 years. Far be it for them to do such a thing? No, it would have been fully within their character and capacity to do such a thing. 
Now, the brothers here respond first with an argument, then with an assertion. The argument is found in verse 8. The argument they present is that because they had returned the money that they had found inside their sack from their first trip, it was therefore not consistent for them to now steal silver or gold from Joseph on the second trip. The assertion is found in verse 9, where they say, Whichever of your servants is found with it, that is the silver cup, shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. I think it's ironic that their father, Jacob, made a similar rash vow. Remember back in Genesis chapter 31, when Laban accused his nephew Jacob of stealing his household idols. Now, not knowing that his wife, Rachel, indeed had stolen the idols, Jacob said, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. And so here we see Joseph's brothers making a promise, a vow that seemed at best unwise. I mean, how could they have forgotten that they had found their money returned to their sacks during their first trip? They knew that there could have been some chicanery going on here this second time around. Now, notice the steward's response. He accepts their condition, but he narrows his judgment to punishing only the guilty one. The steward responds, Only the one with whom it is found shall be my slave. The rest of you shall go free. So now we see Joseph's brothers frantically lowering their sacks to reveal their contents. And they were sure that they would likely be exonerated once the evidence had been examined. And so the steward started with Reuben, the eldest, and examines the sacks one by one in birth order. And finally, he came to the youngest brother, Benjamin, and behold, the silver cup is discovered in Benjamin's sack. Now, the first clause in verse 13 reads, then they tore their clothes. Now, the act of tearing one's clothes apart was a typical display of intense sorrow and grief especially during the time of the Old Testament. For example, when their father Jacob had learned of Joseph's supposed death back in Genesis chapter 37, verse 34, Jacob tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Joshua tore off his clothes after he saw and learned of his army's defeat at Ai in Joshua chapter 7. Jephthah tore his clothes when he realized that he would need to kill his one and only daughter because of his rash vow to God in Judges chapter 11. David tore his clothes when he learned of the death of King Saul in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And the prophet Elisha, after he sees Elijah leaving him, being carried up to heaven, Elisha tore his clothes in two pieces in 2 Kings chapter 2. And I can list several more examples. So in this one short clause, they tore their clothes. This clause has profound significance. 
And it contrasts their act of animosity toward Joseph with their genuine care and concern for Benjamin. These same brothers 20 years ago did abandon their younger brother before returning home. And in fact, their abandonment of Joseph was far worse. But here, 20 years later, there is no abandonment. And in fact, we see these same brothers, they tear their clothes, they loaded up their donkeys, and every single one of them returned to Egypt to accompany Benjamin. Let's now read the third and final section of today's passage, where we see the pronouncement of judgment on only Benjamin, beginning in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Notice that at the start of verse 14, the narrator introduces the brothers as Judah and his brothers. At the start of Genesis chapter 37, Reuben, the eldest brother, was the leader. He was the one who persuaded his other brothers to spare Joseph's life temporarily by throwing Joseph into the cistern pit. But now we see over the subsequent chapters, Judah gradually ascend both in influence and character. Remember that while Jacob was unmoved by Reuben's rhetoric in Genesis chapter 42, he was finally persuaded to let Benjamin go to Egypt when Judah gave his surety guarantee. And now in this return to Egypt, Judah becomes the spokesperson. Now in this section, we first see that the brothers again bow down to Joseph a third time. And this prostration to Joseph has seemingly become a repetitive theme. And next, we see Joseph assert his keen insight and alludes to his practice of divination. And again, I had mentioned that there is debate as to whether or not Joseph truly engaged in this ancient cultic practice. But perhaps the statement was a part of the charade that Joseph was playing in front of his brothers to mask his true identity as their fellow Hebrew brother. And now Judah speaks. But in a sense, he was speechless. For he says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Basically, Judah is saying that he has no defense. They are guilty. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, I'm not that sure that Judah here is actually 
confirming the guilt of Benjamin and the brother's guilt by association, though perhaps this was part of it. But rather here, I think Judah and his brothers are feeling the full weight of the guilt of the sin that they had committed against Joseph. And they are now realizing that they are reaping what they had sown. And now the judgment that they are experiencing is coming from God himself. And so Judah here resigns to accept the consequences that all the brothers with Benjamin would become indentured slaves to the prime minister forever. But notice here that Joseph rejects the notion that the other brothers receive judgment. And the same phrase that was used by the brothers in verse 7 is now used by Joseph in verse 17. Far be it from me that I should do so. Only Benjamin will be my slave. As for you and the rest of your brothers, go in peace, shalom, to your father. Now, of course, Joseph knew full well that the brothers would never be able to go back to their father in peace, shalom. For if they returned to their father Jacob without Benjamin, for the rest of their lives, they would remain in anguish. Now, what happens next will be the climax of this narrative, and we'll cover Judah's plea for Benjamin in our next episode. Thanks for listening to Bible Sumo Weekly. For more information about me or this podcast, visit our website at biblesumo.com. In our next episode, we will continue our study and look in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph, and we'll see Judah make his plea to Joseph as Benjamin's surety. Follow our podcast and listen to our Bible studies each and every week here at Bible Sumo Weekly.